0: Them and integrate them into the room; they'll have fun. So today, uh, I'm going to be—we're going to be talking about the resurrection. And there's two people I like to—I um, uh, like to investigate different schools of thought on theology and and, and missiology, whatever we're be talking about. And same thing with the resurrection. So today, some of the material I got uh, was from a Pentecostal theologian, another guy is an Anglican theologian. I like to just see what everybody's looking at, because none of us have it completely nailed, all right, we, we, none of us have complete, perfect theology, so I think it's really great that we read um, from people of vastly different backgrounds, ethnicities, cultures, religious backgrounds, I think it gives us a more holistic view of the gospel, so two guys I used today were Derek Vreeland, who's Pentecostal and N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican, and we're going to be studying the resurrection, but um, before I get there, like back in 1989, there was a critically acclaimed movie that was released called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, it's, you know, I was, it's the first thing that came to mind. I don't know. I'm like, man, that's a terrible movie. Uh, but it's basically, if you haven't seen it, you're lucky. If you have seen it, just refresh your memory. Remember, there's a, there's a science nerd kind of dad who invents this machine that shrinks objects, and naturally, his kids are messing around, and the neighbor's kids, and the neighbor's kids, and, the regu- and his kids get shrunk. And then they navigate this horrible world of dodging the lawnmower and insects that want to eat them and the dog sniffing them. And eventually they land in their dad's bowl of Cheerios. And it's all these uh, crazy events that happen that make us realize, like, things that weren't meant to be shrunk shouldn't be shrunk. Like, there is inherent danger in shrinking objects in, in, in a way that they're not meant to be um, reduced. And the same thing happens with our faith. when we think about uh, Jesus or the church or the resurrection or the crucifixion, anything involving our faith, it's dangerous to shrink that which is not meant to be shrunk. And when you do that, you get what I would call bumper sticker Christianity. We've all seen those bumper stickers or those billboards uh, on the side of the road that reduce the gospel to like one sentence or five words. And it's just, even those four words are filled with, air. Like, oh my gosh, you can't believe that billboard says that, or that bumper sticker says that. Like, I saw one the other day that said Bible, and it was B.I. Dot dot, it was an acronym, and it said basic instructions before leaving earth, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that there's so much that, incorrect. Like, I just want to say wrong. When we try to reduce, the Bible's not an acronym. It is not instructions for living. You guys have heard me talk about that before, but when we try to shrink stuff it shouldn't be shrunk. Bad things happen. And it's dangerous. Um, it see, it's seemingly kind of innocent. But when you see it on someone's bumper sticker, you're like, that's annoying. But when you actually really think about it, it can actually inhibit the power of the gospel in their life and in the lives of people who see that or who hear reductionist gospel come from our, our lips. And, and maybe they even see that in our lives, uh, a reductionist gospel. gospel. So, we we tend, to, uh, and, and I'm guilty of this too, because I have to get up here and talk for like 20 25 minutes every Sunday. I have to try I, every Sunday. I have to try to reduce like Jesus into something we can grasp, and it's really I have to really resist doing that, um, of giving like very like here's how you should do this. If you do these three things, everything's gonna work out. You're gonna feel the Holy Spirit. Like I can't do that because that's not how the Holy Spirit works. So it's really um, tempting to reduce the gospel. And so we're going to do the complete opposite of that over the next fifty days of Eastertide. And we're going to focus in on one particular aspect of the gospel to expand upon and to deepen our understanding. And that is the resurrection. There's no better time to investigate and explore broadly and deeply the resurrection than Eastertide, which is the season of resurrection. So that's what we're going to do over the coming weeks is investigate what is uh, the, the two greatest acts in, of love in human history, the crucifixion and the resurrection? And it's just like if you're married or if you have an intimate friendship with someone, there's levels that you're meant. There, there's a journey into the depths of someone's mind and heart that you take. That's love. Like you continue the journey of intimacy. That means you engage tension and problems, uh, confusion over you know, it's, all of us have been in a relationship with someone where there's communication like just missing. And you explore that. You're, okay, why, are, why do we feel off? Maybe it's a day or two, or maybe you're still getting to know that person, and you're just figuring out what, how they're wired or what makes them tick. But engaging this and deepening our understanding with people that we love and care about, this bears fruit. This causes love to mature and to grow, and we're going to do that with uh, the gospel and with, in particular, the resurrection. So today our scripture of the day is Romans chapter 5. It's on page 785. And I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. Um, here we go. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Um... So we'll stop there because of his resurrection, we are no longer a different version. I was surprised because the, the the other NIV version says "enslaved by sin." It's a little bit more blunt, so I'll use that. We're no longer enslaved. We're no longer trapped by sin because of the resurrection. That is one thing of many that the resurrection does for us. Is it, it releases us? It frees us um, from sin, from idolatry, from death. And the, the the positive way that scripture states this is in scripture it says born again. You've probably heard that phrase if you're a Christian or new creation is another way that the Bible describes what this life is that we have now because of the resurrection. They're powerful metaphors that had deep impact then and they still stand today. And if you've been a Christian for a while, I'm probably not telling you anything you don't already know. Like you've probably heard the terms born again, uh, freed from sin, uh, new creation. But we're gonna continue the journey because it's good to be reminded of truth, and it's also good to explore what's beneath the truth and and what else lies beneath the surface. So when it comes to approaching faith, a lot of times I like to approach it as a skeptic. I like because, frankly, I have doubts a lot. Like I have questions of God many times. And so it helps my faith to not brush those aside and not cover those up, but to actually engage that tension and explore those doubts and those questions. And I feel like that helps us uh, mature our faith to acknowledge that we have questions about God and what he means to us and to the world. So one question that I have about the resurrection and the claim that we just read in Romans that we're no longer a slave to sin is how? How does Jesus dying and raising from the dead Make me a new creation. I mean, that seems like quite a leap. Not only, it's quite a leap to believe that a man died and rose from the dead. It's an even bigger leap, or or just as big of a leap, to try to figure out how does that connect to me 2,000 years later? How does that, like, affect me to what it's saying is the deepest parts of me, that I'm freed from sin and freed and and, and part of his kingdom? That seems like a big jump. Um, So how is a question. Another question I have is why. Why does it matter? Why do we need to understand the resurrection? Why do we need to understand Jesus? Why do we need to live for him and follow him? What kind of an uh, an effect does that have on me and on others? And there's a section in Hebrews that we're going to read today that will kind of get the ball rolling. Um, Unfortunately, again, the Bible Bible is a story. It's not like a dictionary or a thesaurus where we just flip somewhere and we've got all the answers just kind of laid out in front of us. But Hebrews gives us a glimpse here of part of the power of the resurrection. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to put this on the screens. Verse 11, and then I'm going to skip, and we're going to read verses 23 through 26. I would encourage you to read all of Hebrews 7. It is potent. It is really powerful. If perfection, and I put in parentheses heaven, because that's what perfection is, is heaven, could have been attained... Through Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. So that's, that's a lot of Old Testament stuff. Uh, we'll, I'll come back to that. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. So this gives us a glimpse. The first part of that is filled with a lot of Old Testament references. So there are 12 tribes uh, in Judaism. One of those tribes is the tribe of Levites, which is the priestly tribe. So that's when it says Levitical priesthood, That tribe, that group of people, that family, uh, it's a large family, that's where a priest came from in the Old Testament. And then it refers to the law. The law was thought of as like a ladder or uh, steps or rules to follow to maintain the connection to perfection, to maintain that connection to God. And then you've got priests who lead people in that law, like Melchizedek is a priest from the book of Genesis. Aaron is a priest from the book of Exodus. He was Moses' right-hand man. He was there for like the parting of the Red Sea, leading people out of slavery. So there's a lot of history contained in that one sentence. But then we have Jesus continuing the priesthood, and what Hebrews is claiming is that he's the permanent priest. He's a priest that will never die, never go away, and he's the only pr- priest who's ever been holy and blameless and pure and exalted above the heavens. So many of us, uh, the comparison might be the, why this matters is that we've all had teachers or coaches or leaders or professors or politicians or uh, mentors who have influenced us, who have led us, In a direction, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Because we've all had teachers we loved, and we've all had teachers we we didn't want to be a part. You know, didn't want to be in their classroom. We've had, and and every one of those interactions or those relationships is a season. So there's a lot of like ebbs and flows because of the good and the bad, and because there's you know a little bit of a roller coaster because. We're saying we're meeting new mentors or new influencers in our life, and we're saying goodbye to others at different seasons. So there's just this constant state of kind of organized chaos of people that speak into our lives and influence us. And what we get in Jesus is a fixed point, the permanent priest of someone who is eternal and always good. There is perfection. There is a, um, a complete trust now in someone that we can allow to lead us and influence us and we never have to worry is going to hurt us or leave us. That is something, we may not crave that, but we should um, because we've had people, I mean, we, we are influenced by, I mean, let's just take a look at the current climate of political leaders, all right? It, it's hard to place hope and trust in what people say or do. What we've got in Christ is the perfect king, the perfect priest to follow, and it's this fixed point that we can naturally um, let our gaze settle on of our hearts and our minds and never take our sight off of him because he's never leaving. And that's why uh, the resurrection uh, gives us that hope. It's that death could not hold him. He's there. He's not going away. So this is how he saves us, is that he is a fixed point. And we need this. Why he saves us is because the world needs to be made right again restoration, repair, healing, they need to occur at a macro level. And in biblical terms, heaven needs to come to earth. Death needs to be conquered by life. This is one of the reasons we believe in him. It's not the only reason. It's just one of the reasons that we believe in him and in the resurrection. And we believe through following him, us as participants get to bring heaven to earth. And again, if you've been a Christian for a while, I'm probably not telling you anything you don't already know. That's that, that is kind of like okay yeah i i I understand that i've I've heard that I've lived that. let's shift back to how now, because there's an important nugget in how that we need to explore, and it's tied to Jesus being our fixed point, our permanent priest, and him being like this restorer, this like great physician and healer of the world and it's something that we have a tendency to ignore, dismiss, or resist um, this might be the part. You didn't know, and you haven't considered, about the resurrection. And as our scripture of the day said, we're no longer slaves to sin. Meaning now, we are now part of the priesthood. We're called to be pure and holy and blameless. So here's what we need. This is where we need to tie our theology to history. Historical Christianity. Um, I, I think I've said this before, but the Romans considered them atheists. They were they were considered heathens because of who they, they, they believed in the kingship of Christ and the way they lived. Historical Christianity was renowned and reviled for their ethics and morality. I mean, Christians are the ones who started hospitals and who started adoption, who started caring for kids with special needs because before Christians, they would put, those, they would put kids to death who had special needs. Like This was revolutionary, unbelievably high ethics of life and morality, and it was not popular in the Roman Empire for the first 300s of Christianity, and it's a big deal because it seems to be less of a big deal now. We aren't. Uh, we we have a tendency to resist, though, that high ethic, that that high picture of holiness that Jesus is trying to lead us into. And one of the massive benefits, and it's actually a curse, at least I would contend. Um, well, let me, let me say this. It's less of a big, big deal now, particularly among people of privilege. We're all, we all, I think, in this room, because we live in America and because most of us hold down pretty well-paying jobs or, or have an education, we are all people of privilege. So one of the, the curses of privilege is that we have the freedom of ethical choice. When you're in a position of power, you have choices available to you that those without power don't. So a couple of weeks ago, I I sat my boys down and introduced them to a life-changing experience, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. All right, so we watched last weekend, we watched The Fellowship of the Ring, and then last night we watched The Two Towers. I have to do this when Carrie's gone, because there's no way (laughs) she's sitting through that stuff. Uh, So if you're like, I've never seen it, don't worry. I'm not going to go like full-on nerd here. Uh, but one of the, 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 kind of the main theme of the Lord of the Rings is that there's a ring of power, and everybody wants it, and there's one person, Frodo, who is called to destroy it. So that, it, it's like these three movies that take place, all circling around the, the ring of power. And the boys were asking me last night before we watched the first movie, what's this movie about? And I'm like, oh, it's got an incredible battle scene at the end between two armies, and Sutter, my seven-year-old, said, why do armies fight? And I'm like, oh, man, yes. <laughs> such, a, such a great question. Um, what I chose to focus on was the ring of power. I'm like, the reason they're, they're fighting in the movie is they all want the ring of power. They all want control. Um, and if you've seen the movie, you know that the ring of power has this ability to distort minds, to corrupt hearts, and it even physically changes people one of the characters changes physically into a kind of a creature, and that's what power does to us. I remember reading an article in The Atlantic like a year ago that people in positions of power, actually their brain, the longer they're in power, their brains begin to be rewired, and they get dumber. They do. It's, it's scientifically true that they, they lose certain aspects, particularly of qualities like empathy and sensitivity and discernment, these abilities start to go away the more power or the longer they've been in power. And the, so the ring of power is true in the Lord of the Rings. It's also true in real life that the pursuit and obsession with keeping power will erode our holiness. It's a fact. And it will be very gradual gra- uh, gradual, and it'll be almost imperceptible. And one of the most toxic things you can do to your holiness is to try to be your own queen or your own king. like Pursue individualism constantly. Um, if, you, uh, if you do that, you're pursuing the ring of power. If you think more often about your career than about Christ, careful with your holiness because you're pursuing power and privilege and control and you have the freedom to do that. Uh, but, we, but we also, that's how, that is how our holiness is corrupted. If you compete against others, uh, if you push others down, even, and no one does that really overtly, it seems like. Everybody's really good at kind of under-the-radar competition and under-the-radar, like gossip and putting, you know, keeping people at a certain level or a certain place. Those of us in privilege have the power to do that. Or if you compartmentalize your faith to specific relationships or contexts, you're corrupting your holiness. You're, you're binding God. Uh, you do any of these, and there's more, your priesthood is being corrupted. Your holiness is eroding and therefore, heaven will come to earth at a slower pace when we're not participating. Um, the more holy participants Christ has following his priesthood, following his ethics, following his holiness, and allowing him to define that, the faster heaven comes to earth for us and for others. And um, remember, we, hyper-individualism springs forth from the Enlightenment. From the, the, the modernist movement. The new wave right now is postmodernism. It's like we're swimming in this pool of modernism and postmodernism. And it's all wrapped up together. And postmodernism, one of the big qualities of this philosophy is a rejection of a meta narrative, which means like a rejection of an overarching story for humanity. So, one, so n- naturally, religiously speaking, people resist one God. They don't want. A meta narrative. They don't believe in that overarching story. They say, I've heard Christians say, many of them have said, Jesus works for me, but he may not work for you, and that's cool. It's not. That's not Christianity. That's Hinduism. That's one God among many. And we can't say that because we, there's, there's a lie that we've come to believe that claiming that Jesus is the one true God is bad news for someone. It's not. It's, it's, it's good news for everyone that he wants everybody to be a part of his story. Um, we don't get to define what holiness is. He does, because he's the priest, he's the king. We don't get to uh, make up rules of ethics and holiness. They've been revealed to us through scripture and through the life of Christ. So whether it be relational, political, financial, sexual, any other topic related to uh, holiness, we, sub- we follow him into that li- into that living and into that definition. We give the authority and the power away to him, which is really hard to do for us, being people of privilege. That's the truth and the great paradox of Christianity is, there is truth and there is grace. It's like, how do you live such a high holiness and not make it feel really exclusive and judgmental of other people? Like, how do you do that? And to be honest, it, it's there's a lot of people that fail at that because, we have, because again, if we reduce the gospel, usually people are attracted to grace, like unconditional love, and they are, like, all in on that, or they're attracted to truth, and they're all in on that, and, like, just live the truth, just obey. I was on staff at a church, and I swear, every sermon I heard, the word obedience was mentioned, every single one, and grace was rarely mentioned. And I'm like, hey, they, like, the gospel's both, you know. Like, we have to be able to live both of those. So the paradox, the freedom comes, and now all we have to do is put, uh, like, adjust the gaze of our heart and our mind on Christ, and we get to be participants in him resurrecting us and the world. And I find an enormous amount of freedom that I am fully accepted as someone who is broken sexually, politically, financially, financially, Um, relationally, like I have issues in all all of those areas, but I am fully included in the kingdom. The priest lets me in and continues to beckon me to come deeper. There is no like line or boundary or um, rule or law that keeps me from him. That is the great, beautiful paradox of Christianity of we have holiness And everybody, no matter how far away you are on, like, the holiness scale or whatever you want to use, you're in. You get to be a part of that. He's including you. He wants you. And the resurrection just draws us into the great restoration of humanity um, with no boundaries. So as resurrected people, let's pursue holiness. Let's give the authority to Christ where it should be. Let's allow him to restore us, and let's be participants in the restoration of the world. And I do want to give one tip regarding holiness, because it's kind of existential. That's kind of like holiness. That's big. Um, I saw uh, a question by theologian Rowan Williams. He said, can we begin to think of the church's holiness as most alive when it most identifies with the marginalized? And I'm like, oh, that's an easy, that, that, that's very easy to understand, like, um, Spend time advocating and coming alongside those who are marginalized while the rest of the world instinctively advocates and comes alongside those in positions of power because we naturally do that. We want to find people who have authority and power and we want to get in their little group because then we have authority and power. But let's be countercultural. Let's actively sabotage that practice by coming alongside the people who are marginalized. Because if you're looking for the, like, how to be holy, a couple of tips would be make Jesus the permanent priest of your life and allow him to define what holiness is and what life should look like and then spend time with the people that he spent time with. Love them unconditionally. And if you, you see stuff all through scripture. He was constantly befriending and hanging out with people who, in the, in the people in positions of power, like, what are you doing hanging out with fill in the blank? Whoever that person is what they do, he was always there with them, being near with them. That is a great way for us, for him to um, spark kind of the holiness in us coming back to life if we've been missing that. So over the coming weeks, we're going to continue to explore the resurrection deeply. Um, I mean, this exploration of the greatest story ever told, it's, it, I hope it's going to refine us and reshape us and challenge us. Uh, I think it will. I think we're going to investigate different parts of the gospel. We're going to take very little away from what you may know. There might be a few things, particularly when we get into Romans chapter one through four. We're going to do a deep dive into that, about what that means. We'll take some stuff away, but really it's going to be broadening and deepening our understanding of the resurrection and what it means to us now and what it means to the world. And the last week of this series, I think it's May 20th, that last Sunday, we're going to have storytelling. This is something we want to do more regularly at Restore. Um, So we're going to have worship, but we're also, uh, over the coming weeks, I want us to think about the impact of living a resurrected life has. Uh, We're going to share stories of impact. Uh, We've done that before, but there is really, we we are a story-formed faith. The more stories that we hear, the more... Uh, excitement and, and, and vigor that we have to follow Christ. And we're going to do some open sharing of, of acknowledging God movements in our life to kind of wrap up this series before Memorial Day weekend. I'm really looking forward to that. Let's pray, and then we're going to close with a song.